0: All right, this is our last section in the book of First Timothy. And we've been talking about establishing the church. We are planted, but now we have to become established. And having gone through First Timothy, I feel like the Lord is now going to see what we're going to do with it. <laughs> so now you know, now live first timothy as a church so we've gone over quite a few things about what a healthy church looks like a healthy church doesn't devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies or the new thing what's shiny and new it commits to the old paths of christian truth and the aim of a healthy church is love which issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A healthy church prays together, and they pray for all men that they might turn to the Lord. A healthy church is not pre- is not preoccupied with senseless quarreling. The women are humble and holy. The men strive for holiness in their own lives and character formation. We talked about deacons and elders which this church needs and we are moving forward to in our theological focus group. We'll talk more about that uh, but the theological focus group will be training basically us to handle the scripture, know the word, understand doctrine and how to form our lives spiritually. So if the Lord is calling you to leadership in this church, I invite you to our theological focus group, men's theological focus group. It's going to be starting in January, and we'll get more dates and details in that. But it's going to require some reading, scripture, some reading of good, solid books, rich books, and discussion and meeting together. We also talked about a healthy church tangibly serving one another when we talked about widows being served. Treating one another like family. And there's a lot more we talked about, but today we're going to see how a healthy church can actually last because many churches have started well but have not lasted, not endured to the end. So, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 13, which is Paul's final charge to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, chapter 13, or verse 13. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things in Christ Jesus, who in the testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstayed and free from error, until the, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing this, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Did you know that almost every Ivy League institution in America began as a Christian college I know we have at least one college or Harvard graduate among us, but I was looking at Harvard's rules and precepts that they were founded on. And I think this is precept number two. Here are the words of the rules and precepts that Harvard was founded on, I believe in 1636, and they, this was adopted in 1646 to the students. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and and his studies as to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Seeing the Lord giveth wisdom, everyone shall seriously, by prayer, in secret, seek wisdom from God. Everyone shall so exercise himself in the reading of scriptures twice a day that they may be ready to give an account of their proficiency therein, both in the theoretical observations of the language and logic and in the practical and spiritual truths. (laughs) What an amazing rule and precept to start a college with. I feel like I'm going to adopt that as a mission statement. I would love, that's, that's really our aim, as we learn about the word, is to give, read your Bible so that you can give an account of the proficiency of your understanding, the theoretical observations of the language and logic and the practical and spiritual truths. I love that. So that's what Harvard was founded on. If you did not know, Harvard is no longer a Christian institution. Yale, likewise, was founded by conservative Congregationalists in 1701. Princeton by Presbyterians. Brown University by the Rhode Island Baptists. And Dartmouth by New New Hampshire Evangelicals. All those Ivy League institutions were founded on Christian principles and based mainly to train ministers. From what I read, the... um, in the first, I want to say in the first um, 50 years of Harvard, I think half of the graduates became ministers. And that was one of their aims, to train educated ministers for the ministry. So the, the problem is that they started well, but they are no longer running the race in that direction that they started so, likewise, churches have gone in the same wayward direction. We think of the Methodist Church, the Episcopalian Churches. Perhaps they started well. Started with, with John Wesley and holiness. And now they've become a, a bastion of everything that is secular and evil in the name of Christ. So, as far as Church of the Vine goes, we are established or we are becoming established, but how do we be, how do we become established so that we can be established in the long run? How, how can we strive for long-term fruitfulness as a people together? And so that not only for us, but that what about those behind us? What about those who come behind us? As a really a church I admire, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and you can read their, their founding documents and you see, the I think, the first 13 members signing off, telling you why this congregation was founded, the biblical principles on which it was founded, and now they're a flourishing church that helps other churches. I would like to have a long-term fruitful life and fruitful ministry and I know you do as well how can we do that Paul gives this final charge to Timothy and he's almost like an old soldier going into battle he charges him he charges him to keep the faith pure he charges him to guard the good deposit entrusted to him and to keep his eyes and the eyes of the congregation on eternity not on what is passing away So, if many churches and denominations have started well, but have not continued to run the race, how can we avoid doing that? Or, put another way, how can we build ourselves up for a long-term, fruitful ministry that glorifies God? I have four principles that I'm extracting from this passage. Number one, from this passage, I see that the way we can last in the long run is by maintaining a sense of weightiness in the ministry among us. The Apostle Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus in his testimony before Pontius Pilate gave the good confession. So, this is a solemn charge to Timothy to understand the weightiness of what he is doing as a minister of the gospel. Why is youth wasted on the young? Why is that? I believe youth is wasted on the young because very often youth do not understand the opportunities that are before them at the present time. Whether those are academic, oh, I wish I could go back to college. I was just talking with Nydia. If we could say, okay, let's say if we can promise that we're right back here, we're married, we have Wes and Elise, what would you go back and do different in high school or college? Oh, I would have practiced basketball so much more. (laughs) I would, oh, in college, I would have taken philosophy and and psychology and I would have gone to seminary uh, rather than taking it online I would have there are so many things I would have done youth is wasted on the young because very often they, they have all these opportunities and they don't understand the weightiness and, the, and the, the opportunity of the opportunity it's because we don't have we did not have a, a sense of the importance of what we were doing That's why youth is wasted on the young. And we did not realize that our actions had consequences for the rest of our life. So Paul says to Timothy to add appropriate weightiness to the ministry. He says, I charge you. In the presence of God who gives life to all things. And in the presence of Jesus Christ. In other words, as if the Father and the Son were watching. What is happening in Ephesus and your ministry. As if his eyes are in every place moving to and fro. So this solemn charge to Timothy is to help him understand the weight and the consequence of his ministry. Now, I think we at Church of the Vine need to understand the same thing. We have an opportunity here. This is a very, very secular area. And those that are not secular are in very strange churches. Now, I'm not saying we're the only ones, but I'm just saying that there are very... there's. There is religious ambiguity throughout this area in a very special and unique way. And people are so nominal and have such a, a vague idea of tr- spiritual truth. And the tr- and a lot of churches in this area are extremely liberal. So we have an opportunity to actually, in one of the most confused towns, Newburgh, to be a a strong colony, a beacon, an outpost for the gospel. And I think we need to embrace that. We need to realize the weightiness of this opportunity. Don't just think of this as coming to church. Think of this as building something. Don't think of inviting someone to church. Think of, of actually... Participating with the, the kingdom of God. And this is the opportunity among us. So understand the weightiness of this opportunity. That this this is our chance to be on the stage of human history and to sow into God's kingdom. This is it. Saul did not kill King Agag when he should have. And he was not as decisive as he should have been. And Samuel says these penetrating words to Saul. He says, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. The problem with Saul is he was little in his own eyes. He took things for granted. He took things lightly and did not understand the weightiness of what he was doing and its consequences for the people of God. The spiritual significance of his actions. So, Church of the Vine, be not little in your own eyes. I say that to myself. Let us not be little. In our own eyes as we seek to establish and build a healthy church and a healthy work among us in God's mysterious very mysterious providence he has granted unto us things that pertain to eternity so that we can actually make a eternal impact for the kingdom as we operate corporately as a church do not be a little in your own eyes. Do you not know that you will judge angels? Did you not know this? And your life is little in your own eyes? Oh, that it's not just the church. Your very life as well glorifying God. Don't just float through life. Don't just let the Christian life happen to you. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. It is hard. It is a hard thing. No one ever said it was easy. But strengthen your weak knees. Make straight the path of your feet and serve with the strength that God supplies and struggle with all the might that he powerfully works within you. Don't be little in your own eyes. Do you not know that there is a cloud of witnesses watching? So... The first way we can maintain a long-term ministry is to appreciate and embrace the weightiness of not only the Christian life, but the opportunity we have as a church to build something for God's glory and by His power. Number two, we can build a healthy church in the long run by seeking to guard the undefiled purity of biblical truth in this church. Seek to guard the undefiled biblical purity of this church. How do we do this? Number one, I believe we can do that by aiming for doctrinal precision in in among our midst. I charge you in the presence of God who gives a life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained. Unstained, spotless, without stain, not mixed with error. I love this quote by Calvin. Ambiguity ambiguity is the fortress of heretics he says That is true Now I'm not saying we need to be 100% confident about every doctrine we ever meet But we cannot be ambiguous about those doctrines that we do meet clearly in scripture So we need to aim for doctrinal precision. On Wednesday, I gave an example of sighting in a rifle. Ray had a Spanish word for this. I forget what it is. But um, if you sight in a rifle at 100 yards and you're a half inch off, if you were to shoot at 1,000 yards, the distance that you will miss the target will be much greater. And if we have... Doctrinal ambiguity in our church On essential matters And matters of great importance And prudence For the life of our church As time goes on As time goes on That precedent Will create a wider and wider gap Between what the scripture is telling us And the kind of life for living as a church Or as individuals So we need to aim for precision Informed and charitable precision in this church. So that's why in Bible study uh, we appreciate the church fathers who were very precise in their language consubstantial and co-eternal with the Father is Jesus Christ of the same essence and of the same temporality the same the same eternality as the Father so Christ is not a demigod he is God of God light of light secondly not only should we aim for doctrinal precision in this church but we need to hold each other to a standard of holiness in this church which is so very far missing in many churches to keep the commandment unstained Paul says From reproach, uh, to keep the man unstained and free from reproach. Free from reproach. Reproach is worthy of rebuke or criticism. We need to keep each other free from being worthy of rebuke or criticism. And I believe nothing has brought more reproach on the name of Christ than people, especially people who are in the public eye, who identify as Christians and live in a way that contradicts that identification. Nothing has been more, been more harmful to the church in the public eye. So what, we, what convinces a people that something is different among us is that we are holy, happy, humble of heart. We have integrity of character, love for neighbor, and a devout faith. And a peaceful demeanor. And a joyful hope. There must be something different. There, I- there is something different about the Christian He has a divine influence upon his life that the secular word does not have. And that divine influence should be the very thing that convinces the world that something is different. What was it that convinced the people that the prophets of Baal were false prophets? And that Elijah's God, Yahweh, was the true God. Why, it was reality. That's what it was. Reality. The prophets of Baal did not call down fire. And Yahweh's God did send down fire. Reality is what convinced them. So we must be a people who are gripped by the reality of God. My favorite. Did I quote you? The poem. The dove descending breaks the air last week. Did I do that to ourselves? Yeah, okay. I did. To the Bible, study. In Bible study. I'm going to do it now. All right. What's his name? Forget the poet, but he talks about, in in the most powerful language I've heard outside of Scripture, he talks about a life gripped by the fire of the Holy Spirit in one's life. He says, The dove descending breaks the air in flames of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else to spare lies in the choice of pyre or pyre, to be redeemed from fire by fire. I love that line. A pyre is something you would burn at the stake on. The Christian life is about being redeemed from fire by fire. And he goes on, he says, who devised this torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove this this intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. You will be consumed by fire. Will you be consumed by the fire of judgment or the fire of the Holy Spirit? Be consumed by the reality of God that's what convinces a world and I believe it would be very very good and it is not just good it is necessary for our church to be consumed with the fire of God if it is to last in the long run so, we can facilitate the purity of church by aiming for doctrinal precision, number one, on the essentials, and a culture of holiness in the church, number two. And we must hold to this, each other to this standard. Amen? I have two important qualifications on that. Number one, by precision, by doctrinal precision, I don't mean woodenness on non-essential matters. Doctrinal woodenness is what I would define as taking debatable things and blowing them up as the main thing. And that will kill a church more quickly than doctrinal ambiguity. As I've said before, uh, I believe this is from Gavin Ortland. I learned this. There are four types of doctrines in the Christian church. There are doctrines to decide There are doctrines to debate. There are doctrines to divide over. And there are doctrines to die for. The classic doctrine to decide is something like the millennium. That's not a doctrine to die for. And it shouldn't be in that position. A doctrine to debate might be the impassibility of God or limited atonement. A doctrine to divide over might be one's understanding and practice of baptism and perhaps charismatic theology a doctrine to die for that would be like the exclusivity of Christ and abortion those kinds of things and so we need to put each in its rightful place as we aim for doctrinal precision so doctrinal precision on what we would die for Especially, and what we would divide over. But there must be charity over what we need to debate and what we need to decide as Christians. And if you look at our statement of faith, it is precise on the essentials, and it gives latitude on the secondary issues. Secondly, so number one was We need to aim for doctrinal precision, but doctrinal precision does not mean um, doctrinal woodenness on non-essential issues. Number two, we need to have a culture of holiness in this church. However, we must never allow a culture of holiness to lead to the practice of hypocrisy in this church. When I say culture of holiness, I don't mean... Dress in your Sunday best and put your best face on. And let's just, let's just play holy around each other. Please understand that. Please understand that. And I, I know you do. A culture of holiness includes the ability to confess our sins to one another. And still be loved. And still be embraced as a brother or sister. And to be helped along and to be reconstituted, having confessed your sins. You will in no wise be cast out if you confess to me or any other brethren or sisters here a sin, your deepest sins. I will not give up on you. I will be frustrated at you and i'll call you to holiness and i'll do that till i die but you will not be cast out and you will not, we will not we will refuse to be a church who plays holy no we need real holiness real holiness involves the ability to realize that while we strive for perfection on our best days we nothing but the worst of sinners, like the Apostle Paul says. So, true holiness, as I understand it, is to admit that you have failed time and time again, that you need forgiveness. And there are times where a saint may fall into even grievous sins. Confess your sins. You will not be cast out if you repent and you do the work Of seeking the face of God. Um, And we need to be that kind of church. So, doctrinal precision, culture of holiness. Precision, not woodenness. Holiness, not plain church, right? Number three, it is so important that as a church we keep an exalted view of God in Christ. Listen to what Paul says, how he talks about God. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, which he will display at the proper time, when the time is right. He'll do it when the time is right. And it's not for us to know the times or seasons, but he'll do it when the time is right. Then he says, He who is blessed and sovereign, King of kings, and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has ever seen nor can see, to him be eternal dominion. Amen. Mm. So how do you see God? How do you see God? He's not, just the, he's not, he's not the man upstairs. And I think in evangelicalism, we want to feel God a lot. We want to know, experience God. We want in us. We want that that existential, psychological, emotional attachment to God. I want that too. However, however, don't, don't rush to imminence. Don't forget God is not just imminent. He is transcendent. He's not just closer than a brother. He's high and exalted. So let us not be so caught up in imminence that we forget that he is a father who art in heaven and that his name should be hallowed. He has authority and might. He is sovereign. He is king of kings and lord of lords. So that speaks of his dominion and authority who alone has immortality. That means he has unending life and the authority to grant it. He alone has immortality. And he dwells in unapproachable life. That is is to say that his presence is so awful, that means full of awe, and intense, that non-glorified persons Of whom we all are, cannot handle to be in his presence until that point of glorification. I know you've heard this before, but um, probably. (laughs) But uh, Paul Washer tells the story of a young man who says, I don't mind going before God and telling him. That I think he's wrong if I if and when I die. And Washer looked at him in the eyes and says, Young man, you will melt before God like a wax figurine in front of a blast furnace. <laughs> I love that imagery. You will you will melt before God. Amen. His presence is awful and awesome and intense. And yet he is love. To him be honor and eternal dominion. So let's recapture an exalted vision of God. Yes, he is imminent, but he is transcendent. He is vast and dark and light. And he is mighty, and there is a thin silence to his presence. And yet when he speaks the thunder's roar I've always loved the passage in, in Isaiah 6 when the king Uzziah, when the year that king Uzziah died Isaiah has a vision I see the Lord seated on the throne exalted and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory Let us see the Lord as exalted and transcendent. High and lifted up. And may the train of his robe. Fill the temple. With glo- of, of the temple of our minds. With the glory of who he is. There is a spiritual discipline. I talked about this last week. Of calling to mind. The main thing. Satan does. Is He lies. To you. He did in the garden. He did in the desert. And Jesus said, He's a father of lies. And what Satan will try to do to you is to take your mind and, and shadow your mind away from glorious things to more earthly and earthy things. Instead of joy, depression, Instead of seeing God as immensely powerful, we give in to common caricatures of an old man with a gray beard who just isn't up on common morality and is kind of stuffy. Rather than a mysterious and dark force who is at the same time love and power who brings you into cooperation with his life. Number four, the way we can maintain a long-term ministry is to take hold of what is truly life in our planning and in our actions. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, I charge them not to be haughty, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy I think by all standards everyone sitting here is rich by all the standards of the world rather and certainly the standards of first century people do not set your hope on what is passing away To hope in something is to have your ultimate anticipation laid upon a thing, an object. So your ultimate anticipation is laid upon this thing. And the problem with setting your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, meaning to take riches and finding a hope that riches can get you, That would be to set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Or take a a hope of life, a common hope of life, and making that the main thing, rather than taking all of your hope and setting it on God and entrusting him with your life. So we need to... This is exactly what Jesus talked about. Store up treasures for yourself in heaven where moth or dust do not destroy. Store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. And we can also, those of us who are rich in this age, by the standards of humanity up until this day, we need to steward our earthly possessions for eternal treasures. uh, Verse 18 We are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share and to store up treasures for ourselves as a good foundation for the future that we may take hold of what is truly life. There's a way to grab on to life and there's a way to let go and grab on to what is passing away. And where your treasure is, your heart will be there as well. That is your very being, will be there. And if your being is attached to something that will be burned up with fire, how awful that fire will be. But if your being and your hope and your treasures and your works and your tears and your joys were set upon that hope that will not pass away, how great the hope is. So what are lies what are what our are our lives aiming at? Dallas Willard's mother before she died Dallas Willard was two years old and one of the last things she said to the father who would outlive her on her deathbed was keep eternity before the eyes of the children isn't that that could be a book title keep eternity before the eyes of the children Church of the Vine, let us keep eternity before our eyes and not set our hope on things that are passing away. Do not believe, but cling to Christ. Do not believe the the lies of Satan, who is the father of lies, but cling to Christ. Faith is, after all, the substance or the undertaking of things hoped for. It's a conviction of things that you can't say that's what faith is so I would suggest Paul says the way to take hold of life is to be rich in good works and Luke Jesus tells a parable of being rich towards God or being not rich towards God so I encourage you to be rich towards God and what I would suggest is that you set aside a specific amount of your money and Consider a generosity fund for your family Above and beyond what you would give an offering And grow that fund And consider with your wife or by yourself How you can use that fund and that money as it grows To be a radical blessing Either evangelistically or for the brothers Perhaps 5% would be a good 5% of your income. Take that. Maybe even open a new bank account or just do the math at the end of the month. And set that aside every month. And then use it to intentionally be a blessing in unique and creative ways. As a church, Paul says, let us consider... Not just stir one another up to good works, but let us consider how to stir one, one another up to good works. Um, that's the way we can actually take hold of what is truly life as a church. Because we want a building, but that's not necessarily how we take hold of what is truly a life the way we truly take hold of what is life and what is eternal, let's stir one another up to good works. Let us consider how to do that as well. If anyone here has something laid upon their heart, perhaps we could do as a church, let us consider how to stir one another up to good works. Tell me about that. So, I, almost like I'm leaving the training gap ground and now going out into the real world, I'm closing the book of 1 Timothy. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. We've just gone through the marching orders of a church, and now we are on our with the power of God to do it having understood and having been trained in this book if we're going to make a colony of heaven on earth let us put these things into practice I'm trying my very best and I would like you to join me in prayer, consider how the Lord might be using you in this fellowship or can use you in this fellowship and give it your very best for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that through those four insights I think this passage gives us, we can have a long-term ministry. If we maintain a weightiness about what we're doing, as we seek to guard biblical truth, promote a culture of holiness, keep Christ exalted, and to take hold of things that are truly life, I think we'll do well. Let's close in a word of prayer.